Good morning again. Today's message, you can see, is called communion with Jesus. Communion with Jesus. And communion's a word that we don't use uh, very often today. If we do, maybe we tie it into when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But communion's a word that refers to having fellowship, having unity with others, a close, tightly bound relationship. It's an intimate term, not in a sexual way, but in having an unbroken and vulnerable relationship with someone else. Yet at the same time, a relationship that is perfectly safe. And I think if we're honest, it's the type of relationship we long to have with other people, to be fully seen and known by someone, yet also be comfortable and safe with them. And this is the type of relationship that we can have with God, that type of closeness. In fact, that was the relationship we were created to have with God, to be tightly bound to him. The all-perfect, all-knowing, all-powerful Lord of the universe wants to have communion with you. He wants to be close to you. But how can that happen? How can we have that kind of relationship? Well, the Bible says that's only through Jesus Christ. We've been here in Sunday mornings going through the gospel according to Mark. We've been learning about who Jesus is, the difference he can make in our lives. Today, we're looking at the very last meal he's going to have with his disciples before his death. This is a well-known story, the Last Supper, there's famous paintings. In the Bible, there's at least four other times this story is talked about, besides Mark. It's in Matthew 26, Luke 22, John 13. The Apostle Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 11. But here today, we're in Mark 14, 12 through 25. And it's telling the facts of what happened. Jesus had a meal with his disciples. But as we look at it, it also presents to us what it means to have communion with God. This passage is going to remind us that our communion, our relationship with God is based on his character, his sovereign control. But it's a relationship that's broken by our sin. Yet our communion can be restored through Jesus's sacrifice. And one day we will experience it in full when he returns. So if you're not already there, please turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. That's big 14, little verse 12. We're going to read through verse 25. And I'd ask that once you are there, if you are able, you would please stand to honor the reading of God's word and follow along as I read our passage for today. Mark 14, starting in verse 12. Verse 12 says, On the first day of the unleavened bread, When they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, to Jesus, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared 
the Passover. Verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Verse 22, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, we long in our life for close relationships with others, communion with others. But God, you made us for communion with yourself. Thank you that that type of relationship is based off of your character, Lord. Oh, but God, we confess, we know that we have sinned, we have rebelled against you, fallen short of your glory, and broken that possibility of communion. But thank you that hope is not lost, because through the sacrifice of your Son, our communion can be restored and one day experienced in full at your return. I pray, God, that as we look at your word today, you'd help us to see the value you put on having communion with us and what we can learn from this last meal about you, about your love for us, and about the work of your son, Jesus Christ. May he be our focus this morning. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So if we're going to have communion with God, if we're going to have a relationship with God, then we have to start at the right place. We can't start by looking at ourselves and what we're like, but we have to look at him. And our passage is going to remind us that our communion with God is based on God's character, is based on God's character. God must initiate this relationship with us. He is all perfect, all loving. He extends to us his love, grace, and mercy. Now, we could spend a lot of time looking at different aspects of God's character. We could spend all day, all eternity, talking about the different aspects of what God is like. Just this past Wednesday, I've been teaching a class going through our church's statement of faith, and we spent time looking at attributes of God's character. And we're going to continue our study looking at Jesus this week. I encourage you to check that out on Wednesdays. So we could talk a lot about God's character. But here, in particular today, we're focusing on the aspect of his character that is his control over all things, or we could say his sovereignty. If we're using an older word, we might say providence. God is in control of all things. And we see in this passage, it's the day of the feast, the festival of unleavened bread, which was the kind of week-long feast surrounding the Passover. 
And on this particular day, they were getting ready to sacrifice the Passover lambs. They killed these lambs and then they ate them in the city of Jerusalem. Why did they do this? Well, because in the Old Testament, God rescued his people out of Egypt. The book of Deuteronomy talks about how they're supposed to do this. It says to keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night, and you shall offer a Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or from the herd. And you will do it at the place the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. That's why they were eating it in Jerusalem. Verse 3 says, you shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. This was a time God's people got together to remember how God rescued them from slavery. They were enslaved to the Egyptians and there was a series of plagues, but Pharaoh still didn't let them go. But on the last day, they sacrificed a lamb they put the blood over their doorpost, and then the angel of the Lord came, and he killed the firstborn of everyone who didn't have that blood, but he passed over the houses of the Israelites. And so his people faithfully kept that celebration year after year. It was one of the biggest feasts of the year. But to celebrate this meal, they needed certain ingredients, certain items, plus they had a, a normal meal to set up. And so in our passage, Jesus tasked two of his disciples with setting up this meal. The Gospel of Luke tells us who they are. It says it was Peter and John. And Jesus gives just them this assignment. This preparation for this meal is kept quiet, maybe because Jesus has been stepping on a lot of toes lately. He was just in the temple arguing with religious leaders, and so maybe they were following him or watching him. And he wanted in a place where he could get away with his disciples to share this meal. One scholar I was reading suggested that maybe he sent these two or sent just two because he wanted to keep the location hidden from his disciple Judas, who's about to betray him. So Judas wouldn't know where it was until he arrived. And so Jesus could have this meal in peace before he would be arrested later that night. But regardless of the reason, Jesus sends Peter and John into the city to find the place for this meal. And when they go in the city, he tells them they're to look for a man carrying a jar, a pitcher of water. That might not strike us as odd, but that would have been a really unique sight to see. Because in this day and age, the way the, the gender norms were at that time, it was normally the women who went and got the water for the family. So to walk into the city and see a man carrying a jar of water, it would have drawn their eyes. It would have been something noticeable that they could recognize, an unusual sight. But they're going into a city that there may be as many as two million people gathered in. How will they see this man at just the moment they get there? Well, they have to get there at just the right time, the exact moment when they would see him. And here we see Jesus' character of sovereignty. He knew when they would arrive in the city, and he knew what they would see. And in his divine providence, he directs them where and when they needed to be there. He tells them they're to follow the man, and when he enters the house, they're to approach the owner of the house and say, the teacher says, where is my, the guest room of this house that we can stay in? And then they would lead them to a large upper room ready for the meal. And we're told in verse 16, the disciples set out, they went into the city, and they found it 
just as he had told them. Now, how did Jesus know it would be like this? Had he arranged something in advance with this man of the house? That's, that's possible there, but they still had to arrive at just the right time to see this man carrying the water. We see here that Jesus is in total control of the situation. He sends them knowing what they'll find, where they'll go. He's in control of all the events happening here. And that's important because we're getting very close to where Jesus is going to die on the cross. That means even that, even his death, he knew that it was going to happen and he still moved forward. Pastor Tom talked a little bit last week about how Judas and the religious leaders, they're having plots on how to get rid of Jesus. There's danger surrounding him, but Jesus doesn't respond with fear. He doesn't respond with desperation or anxiety. He is God. He has access to all knowledge. So his suffering, his death, the crucifixion, it didn't take him by surprise. It wasn't an unexpected wrinkle in his plan. He knew what was coming. He knew he was about to become the true Passover lamb. As John the Baptist said when he saw him years before, he looked at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in that, we also kind of see more evidence of his sovereignty because Jesus is about to die at the same time the Passover lambs are being sacrificed. He's in some ways deliberately timing when his death is going to be. He has complete control over what is happening. As we go through these last couple chapters of Mark, there's going to be a lot of plot, a lot of details, a lot of things coming together, but God is still in control. Look how Jesus describes his death. He says, this is the reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Look, he says, no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This is the charge I have received from my Father. Jesus knows what is happening to him. He is the one in control of the situation. And it's not just something then. He's still in control now. He knows the outcome of everything. He is in control of all things. The Apostle Paul would say that he is before all things. In him, all things hold together. And friends, here's what that means for you. That means Jesus knows the details of your life. He knows the situations you're going through. He can work out all the details of whatever your current trial or trouble is. You can trust him. Maybe you're overwhelmed or exhausted. Maybe work is just becoming too much. Maybe the school year has been a big struggle. Maybe there's an unexpected health issue that has popped up. Maybe there's some strained relationships that you're having to deal with. Friends, he is still over all. And that's encouragement we can see even from this passage. One pastor, Kent Hughes, he's looking at this text and he says, a God who is in control when the foundations of his own earthly existence are crumbling. Jesus is about to die. He's about to lose everything, but he's still in control. And the pastor says, that is a God who can be trusted to sustain us when it appears that our life is tumbling in. When you feel that your life is falling apart, remember that when Jesus was at the end of his life, he was still in control. I hope you look for, see God's control, his providence, his sovereignty over your life. 
You can remember times where God has taken care of you. Maybe his control has worked in your life to bring you here this morning. Maybe he has brought you here to hear of his love and to come to know him for the first time. So God's character is the basis for our communion. His control is one aspect of that character. That's how we can know God because he is all perfect in so many ways, including his control. But there's a problem. And the problem is that communion with God is broken by our sin. It is broken by sin. In this passage, we see that in the betrayal that Jesus says is about to happen to him. Jesus and his disciples arrive at this meal. They take the usual posture that they would eat formal meals at that time. They wouldn't sit in chairs like we do. They'd recline on a low couch up to the table, kind of sitting on their side. And so they lay down at the table, and they're all together here. This is an intimate uh, fellowship, really a, a communion among these close friends. Jesus deeply loved these men. And now we've kind of been reading through it, and maybe it's gotten lost in the shuffle, but Jesus spent time with these 12 disciples for the better part of three years, every day, every night, all 13 of them together. Maybe there were others around too, but they have been together almost nonstop for three years. This is a, supposed to be a meal of joy, connection. They enjoy spending time together, but it's interrupted by an ugly reality that there is a traitor in their midst. As Jesus says, they're reclining at table and eating, and Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Jesus knew that one of his disciples, specifically Judas, would betray him. And when it happened, he wasn't surprised. He viewed it as fulfilling scripture, The book of Psalms speaks about even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. He's prepared for this betrayal. But the disciples are not prepared for this at all. They're sorrowful. Other translations have they're saddened, distressed, shocked at the idea that one of the disciples, one of these people we've spent every day with for three years is going to betray Jesus, our master, When they question it, they say, is it I? He confirms it. He says in verse 20, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. And again, this is a moment for us to pause and really consider what's happening here. I think most people are familiar with the basics of this story. If you're in Western culture, you know, we know Judas betrayed Jesus. You don't see many kids walking around with the name Judas. We, We understand what he did. But we really have to remember that this was a complete devastating surprise for the disciples. They had no idea at all that this was coming. Later, maybe they pieced together some of the warning signs, but in this moment, they were shocked even at the idea that somebody could betray them. It probably reminds us how difficult it is to spot counterfeit or false faith. They thought everyone there was on the same page. As Pastor Hughes said, all one has to do is say a few buzzwords with the correct inflections in the right place, and he can fool the elect. It's not that hard to pretend to be a Christian. You just have to say a couple words, drop a few blessed into the conversation, and people may think you're part of the faith. You can say all the right things, but not have communion 
with God. But again, the disciples are shocked at this. They all each say, is it I? Surely you don't mean me. And perhaps in this moment, it's a moment of reflection for them. Am I the one? It seems like it's some appropriate self-reflection here. Later, they'll be like, no, none of us will ever do it. But in this moment, they at least consider, maybe I'm the one who would do this. And this self-reflection is appropriate because they're about to celebrate the first Lord's Supper. They all acknowledge it could have been them. They know their weakness, their tendency to sin. Jesus, though, isn't concerned with identifying the person. Instead, he just talks about what's going to happen. He says, the Son of Man is going to suffer and die after he is betrayed. This is what the Old Testament predicted and declared. It says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. There are passages in the Old Testament that talk about the suffering that's going to come to the Son of Man, the betrayal. Passages like Isaiah 53, Psalm 55, we don't have time to look at today, but they reveal it's God's plan. Jesus is going according to God's predetermined will. And he was faithful to this call. In John 17, this is after this event, he's praying for his disciples and he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, these people you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one has been lost except the son of destruction, except Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. What Judas was going to do was predetermined, predicted in advance. Yet in our text, Jesus makes it very clear, even though this was predicted, Judas is still responsible for his sin, his evil. And I know that can be difficult for us to wrap our minds around, but scripture affirms two things. It says God is in control, he is sovereign over all things, yet he holds us responsible for the choices and the the decisions that we make. And it's tough for us to put that together in our minds. Our minds, we want to lean to one side or the other, but God says that both are true. He ordered all the events that that happened, but particularly here, all the events in Jesus's life, yet he still holds each person responsible. He worked in and through Judas's choices to bring the good of salvation, even through his betrayal. And Jesus makes it clear this is not a good thing. It would be better for him if he hadn't been born. That's the opposite of the way our mind wants to justify this. There was a a musical that came out a couple decades ago called Jesus Christ Superstar. And in that musical, the the solution they come to is, well, Judas must be in heaven because he fulfilled God's will. God said he was going to betray him. He did it. He was faithful. But that's not what Jesus says here. Jesus says, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Again, it would have been better for him if he had not been born. Which sounds harsh, but... We have to remember Jesus is eating this meal with these men. He loves them. He's giving Judas a loving warning. He knows Judas is going to betray him, but he pitied Judas. He didn't want him to see him suffer. He gives him one final warning to attempt to call him back, even though he knows it will not succeed. When Judas betrayed him, it didn't surprise Jesus. I think it disappointed him. I think it broke his heart, but he was not surprised. 
Now, when we read this, we could read this passage at a distance and say, there's this guy, Judas. He's so terrible. Shame on him. Shame on Judas. I love Jesus. I would never do that. But I think when we approach this, we need to take a moment to have some humble self-reflection with this text. Because Judas is a warning to us too, a warning against appearing to follow Jesus without actually having a genuine relationship with him. The book of Hebrews speaks about this. It says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And then the author says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God does not treat hypocrisy lightly. He does not look on favor with those who only pretend to know him. But let's press this further, because Judas's betrayal reveals the sin that each of us has as well. Scholar Danny Aiken, he says, each one of us is Judas, because every sin against Jesus is a personal act of betrayal. There's a little bit of each of us here. We each choose to do what we want, to make choices that are good for us, not what God desires. And each of those is an act of betrayal. Yet, Aiken says, even those who betray this great and glorious Savior can experience immediate and complete forgiveness through simple repentance and confession of sin. When we choose to live for ourselves, when we choose to say, my life's about me and what I want, then we're betraying that sovereign, loving God who created us. And our sin breaks our communion, our relationship with God. Yet Jesus's warning here to Judas reminds us there's still hope. He's not just saying it and you're too far gone. No, it's, it's a warning there. Jesus knows us as well. He knows that we fail, we betray him by our sin, yet he still wants to be with us. How can we be with him? First John puts it this way, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so let me ask you, I don't have to ask you, have you ever chosen something for yourself? Have you ever betrayed Jesus? We all have. We all live for ourselves. But let me ask you about this first. Have you confessed your sins to him? Have you repented, turned away from your sin, and instead run to Jesus? We're able to go to Jesus because our passage also shows us that our communion is restored by Jesus's sacrifice. Yes, it's broken by our sin, but it is restored by Christ's sacrifice. We see that in how Jesus gives his body, his blood, pictured in this Passover meal, this first Lord's Supper. Remember, we talked about Passover. It was about the people of God thinking about, remembering how God brought them out of slavery in Egypt. But that wasn't the only reason they celebrated it. Because they looked back and said, God rescued us before, so we know he will deliver us in the future. And here, Jesus is telling his disciples, that future deliverance, that future rescue that you've been looking for, that is what I'm here to do. It is fulfilled in the sacrifice of my body, my blood. 
Again, as I said earlier, he will be the true Passover lamb, sacrificed for the sins of his people, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, if we piece this all together, we can see that the reason God told them to celebrate the Passover, the reason they've been celebrating this feast over and over again is not just for the sake of doing it, but so that they would be ready for what Christ did. He is the fulfillment of that. That's why we don't celebrate a Passover feast here, because Jesus has fulfilled it. Pastor J.C. Ryle says that the Passover was meant to draw the attention of the Jewish nation to him, to Jesus, as the true Lamb of God. It was meant to bring their minds to the true object and purpose of his death. Every sacrifice was intended to point the Jew onward to the one great sacrifice for sin, which Christ offered. Jesus provides the ultimate rescue for us. Not from slavery, as terrible as slavery is, as wonderful as rescue from that is, not just to physical slavery, but to the bondage of sin. That is what he saves us from. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He gave his life, his body, his blood to earn salvation for his disciples and for all who would come to know him. Here in this meal, he's giving them a picture, an acted parable, a visible symbol of what's going to happen, something that can help them remember the work that he has done for them, that can help them reflect on the sacrifice he made on their behalf. So what does he do? Well, as they're eating, he takes bread, he blesses it or gives thanks, and then he broke it into pieces and passed it around. And he said as he held it, this is my body. His bread represents his once and for all sacrifice, his life laid down for us. Now, I have to point out something here for us to grasp this. This is Jesus holding this bread, passing it out, saying, this bread is my body. It's not literally his body because he's holding it. He's there in the flesh holding the bread. The bread is not literally his body. That's the opposite of what our Roman Catholic friends would say. But Jesus's literal body is there at that moment. It's not in the bread. He's not sacrificed again and again. Instead, the bread is pointing to the spiritual hunger we have that only he can meet. It's pointing to the sacrifice he made, a real, useful, indispensable sacrifice that he did so we could be saved, the only solution to our sin. He unpacks this some more with the cup. He then takes a cup. During the Passover meal, they would drink several cups together. Uh, at least four times they would all drink together. Maybe this is the third one that was known as the cup of redemption. But regardless, he passes it around, they drink it, and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out or shed for many. It's poured out as a sacrifice to save. And here again, he's fulfilling the Old Testament, the Chapter Isaiah 53 is one of my favorite in the Bible. It's a prediction of what Jesus, the suffering servant, would do. And the very last verse of that says that this suffering servant, this Savior, would pour out his soul to death. He would be numbered with transgressors and sinners, but he bore the sin of many. 
He makes intercession for those who have sinned. But notice Jesus is using the same language. This cup you're drinking, this is me telling you I'm going to be poured out just like the prophet predicted. The cup, the drink, represents his blood shed to atone for our sins. And that is the basis of our new covenant, our communion, our relationship with God, his shed blood, his work on our behalf. The prophet Jeremiah also predicted it. He said, God speaking through him says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'm going to put my law within them. I'll write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. How can this happen? For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. When the Jews had the Passover, they remembered how God had rescued them. The Lord's Supper to us is a reminder that God remembers our sin no more. Jesus died for on behalf of his people. His death confirms our new relationship with God. When Moses and the Israelites had a covenant relationship with God, it's Moses took blood, he threw it on the people, he said, this is the blood of the covenant. I sacrificed animals for you. But now Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom, a purchase for many. This new covenant, this communion with God is purchased and sealed by Christ's blood, his death. And so in a sense, Jesus is creating for his followers a new Passover meal, a Lord's Supper, a meal, a ceremony that reminds us we are forgiven in him. But it's important we grasp what it's doing. It's reminding us of what Christ has done. Our act of just taking the Lord's Supper, participating in the meal, that's not how the grace comes to us. Grace only comes through faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done. I'm not trying to, I mean, if you've been here, you know, I don't spend time critiquing other groups or things. That's not where I like to spend time. But on this issue, I do have to, again, point out where I feel Roman Catholic theology falls short here, their teaching. I was at a funeral a while ago, and the priest said that the person who died had taken the Lord's Supper. And so we could have hope that that person would be in heaven. Because he'd taken the Lord's Supper, he'd received Christ's grace so we could have hope that he would be there. And and I'm sorry, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not saying you eat a certain piece of bread, drink a certain thing, and then you get more of Jesus in you. I'm oversimplifying it, but that's not what he's saying. He's directing us to trust in him. One pastor, Jason Meyer, he's saying, this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is telling them, don't trust in what you do, trust in what I do. I have you. I paid for you. I will never let you go. When we have the Lord's Supper, he doesn't want us focused on the bread, the cracker, or the cup. That's not what we're supposed to be looking at there. He wants us to focus on what he did. And it's not that I'm making this up. Early believers understood this. Augustine, one of the early fathers, founders of the Catholic Church, said, believe and you have eaten. If you believe in Jesus, it's the same as having, as receiving this grace. That is what he is talking about. Now, at the same time, there's great value in the Lord's Supper. I 
During this week, I, I realized my, my flaw in scheduling things this year really should have had us do the Lord's Supper after this today since we're talking about it. It's a great ceremony that reminds us of the wonderful reality. Every time we gather, we remember Jesus. We remember what he did to save us. And we have a taste of that communion with him. I like how this Pastor R.C. Sproul puts it. He says, there is a reality in the celebration of the Lord's Supper that's beyond just memorial, remembering something. Jesus in his humanity is in heaven, but in his deity is not restricted by time and space. So we can have full assurance when we come to the Lord's table that we come into his real presence. He is there. During the Lord's Supper, we remember what he has done for us. We have communion with him. It's a wonderful time for us to be humbled by our sin. I've sinned against God. I've broken my relationship with him. That's why I need to remind myself to take this bread and this cup. It's a time for us to express our faith, dependence on God. I didn't do something for this. This is what Jesus has provided for me. It's hope for the future. I'm having this now knowing that I'll have the fullness of this when I'm with Jesus. It's gratitude for what Christ has done for us. It grows, strengthens, encourages our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. That all happens because the Lord's Supper is a picture of the sacrifice Jesus made for us. It's a picture of the true communion we have through faith in him. But the larger point is still true. Jesus invites us into communion with him, an intimate relationship, one that's nourished and strengthened by what he did for us. And so if you're here, you're watching, you can have communion with Jesus now. Not through eating a bread, drinking a cup, not through good things you do, not through praying the right prayer, saying the right words, but through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Do you know that communion? If you don't, I pray that you'll talk to me about it or talk to someone about it. Say, I really want to know how I can have that type of relationship with God. And I or anyone else would be happy to tell you about what Christ has done and about how you can know him. Because if we do know him, then there's even better news for us. As wonderful as our communion, our experience of closeness with God could be now, our communion will be perfectly fulfilled when Christ returns. Perfectly fulfilled when Jesus returns. We see that in the promise of this passage, that perfect communion is possible. One day our relationship will not be affected by sin and brokenness. As Jesus says in verse 25, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus assures his disciples, you're about to see me die, but that death does not threaten the celebration that's coming. Someday I will return as exalted Lord and King. And at that moment, we will celebrate together. We will share a meal of fellowship and communion. He has confidence in his resurrection. He's trying to give his disciples and us hope for the future. Look, I, I've never ate a meal actually with Jesus. None, none of us have in this room, but someday we will. We'll have that closeness of like sitting across the table from a close friend or, or, or a spouse that 
that closeness of conversation, that comfort, that familiarity, that togetherness that somehow doesn't really happen unless we're eating together. That is what we will share with him. His kingdom will come. Our communion will be perfectly realized, experienced by all who know him. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're getting a small taste of that. It's a, it's a practice meal looking forward to what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what it means by that is the time when Jesus returns and he is united with all of his people. The Bible compares it to a wedding, saying Jesus is the bridegroom and all his people who know him, the church, are the bride. We see this in the book of Revelation. It says, let us rejoice, exalt, give him glory. The marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. Who is the bride? Well, it was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. And what is that linen? The righteous deeds of the saints. Saints aren't super holy people. Saints are everyone who know God, who he has set apart for himself. We will be pure before him to celebrate this unity together. And then the angel encourages John writing this book some more. He says, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And to reinforce it, he says, these are the true words of God. This is the future, a time when those who know Jesus will be celebrating a marriage to him. When we have marriage here, it's just a picture of that day we're united with Christ. And let me ask you, will you be at that meal? The passage says, blessed are those who are there. Will you be there? Have you turned from your sin that separates you from God? Have you come to know Jesus, experience a taste of communion with him? And if you have, well, then praise the one whose sacrifice gives us that communion in the first place. He is the God who loves us, whose character, whose love, whose control provided a way even through our sin by Christ's sacrifice to be united to him again. So if you do know him, if you do know that communion, if you are on your way to that marriage supper, then why don't we stand together and praise him? for he alone is worthy.